Hello, I'm Elizabeth Errington, and this is Energy Perspectives. Over the course of this series, we've discussed many different institutions and organisations, governments, regulators, grassroots organisations, responding to a range of energy challenges. In this podcast, we'll examine the governance framework in which these organisations and institutions interact and analyse what the next steps are for this as a research agenda. So I'm Catherine Mitchell. Uh, I'm a professor of energy policy at the University of Exeter. I run the energy policy group and a subsection of the energy policy group um, works on a project called Innovation and Governance. Um, So one of the statements um, that um, I've read from you is that there um, isn't a fit-for-purpose governance framework currently in the UK. And I was wondering if I could ask you to expand a bit on that, please. So we think of governance as policies, institutions, regulation, uh, the market design, uh, network rules, uh, sort of retail tariffs and so forth, and the politics behind that and how those details get put in place. And we argue that the combination of that governance tends to support a an energy system and the kind of technologies that are used and the way that uh, ownership can occur and the way that customers can be involved and so on. And at the moment, the sum of the value or the way that people can make money out of that energy system continues to be with the old dirty energy system. And we are arguing that because of that, the given government policies and concerns about change and so forth, the the current governance system is not fit for purpose. And we argue that a fit for purpose energy system, uh, energy governance system would be one where the value, the kind of money that can be made out of the energy system is uh, for that kind of sustainable, um, flexible energy system that we know that we need if we are to meet our climate change um, emission reduction targets. And one of the things um, that you've also highlighted is is making that transition um, requires reforming market designs um, in in a way in both direction, which you kind of talked about, but also legitimacy. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about the legitimacy aspect, please. Well, one aspect of the current governance system is that there are no real ways for. Uh, Uh, citizens, groups to get involved um, before a policy or a regulatory change occurs. Uh, And that comes from a very kind of fundamental part of the government philosophy about energy and regulation, which is that uh, it's uh, important to have a, a deep politicised governance system. And so the argument goes that 
if it were depoliticized, then you wouldn't have kind of politics involved and you would have better decisions made. And so they sort of put in place this process that they would argue uh, is depoliticized. Uh, the problem with that is that energy is very political and uh, the distributional impacts of one uh, technology pathway to a sustainable energy system versus another have hu has huge, huge, huge differences for different uh, customers, different people, different technologies, different everything. So it, it ultimately, the kind of energy system we have should be a reflection of the kind of society we want. And so it's just simply not possible. It's, it's, I would argue it's completely wrong to say that you can depoliticize it. Anyway, the way that they do depoliticize it anyway doesn't depoliticize it because all they do is pass um, decisions on to uh, bodies and processes, for example, off-gem or code panels or whatever it might be, um, take these decisions which have huge distributional impact on society and yet they, they, are, they have no... Um, just, you know, no um, responsibility to any uh, to society, and society has no way to be able to take them to task or to ask them why they did that. So, it's a, in my view, it's an it's an entirely illegitimate system in that you have these non-elected uh, people taking these decisions, which have huge impacts on society. Um, and, and we in society can't say what we want. But anyway, I would uh, absolutely disagree that uh, we should be thinking about it like that, because what we should be thinking about is completely the opposite. We should be thinking about, you know, customer interests and what customers want, which may not be, you know, what what businesses want or what the regulator want or what the government want. We should be thinking, what do customers want? and then actually provide uh, the service that they want. And really, the energy industry is, is thought of in a completely different way than most um, other industries uh, who, who do tend to think about what their customers want, and then they do uh, provide it. But unfortunately for us, we in Britain have an energy system that is geared to the interests of companies rather than for its society or its customers. So my follow-up question then is is how we get to the, ne the next stage for the governance system to get from where we are at the moment uh, to where we clearly need to go. So obviously I'm saying you, you have to sort out, out the, um, uh, the kind of framework. And iGov has put up this framework which looks at decision-making, so what, what kind of um, decisions the Secretary of State makes. It has kind of created a consensus building body which tries to sort of bring in um, more consensus from a wider set of people about how those decisions are made, what customers actually do want. Uh, you know, it needs a new kind of system operator, it needs these new kind of local markets, it needs different responsibilities for um, customers, it needs transparency of data, it needs a market monitor so people can't sort of uh, rip off customers and so forth. So we've sort of set up this um, 
framework. And so we're arguing that, you know, this is what we have to do. The transition to a more democratic and inclusive governance framework requires different institutions and organisations to interact in very different ways. In the next part of the podcast, we'll be hearing about deliberative processes, deliberation between stakeholders and deliberative processes with publics. Hi, I'm Sharon Darcy. I'm an associate at the environmental think tank Sustainability First, where we're running the New Energy and Water Public Interest Network, New PIN, and my background's in the consumer movement. So we built this very, very broad network, and what we've done is really take the members of the network on a sort of long-term journey whereby we've systematically looked at some of the key issues um, that need to be taken into account and thought about when you're balancing short-term and long-term interests. And we hold deliberative workshops where we really try and see these issues from each other's perspectives. So that's the key thing we've done. But we've also got work programmes on governance in energy and water and on capacity building for public interest advocates. The energy and water sectors um, both clearly provide services um, which are essential for public and environmental health. But they're services which we know we're not going to just need today. We're going to need into the future as well. Um, So there's an ongoing interest um, in ensuring that those services uh, deliver the outcomes that customers, citizens, communities and society need. People are very concerned about affordability, how their bills look at the moment. But we know that in order to ensure continuity of services, and to be able to ensure that our children and our grandchildren are able to enjoy the same sorts of services that we've enjoyed, you need to keep investing in the future. And there are significant investments in the pipeline, particularly, as you know, in the energy sector, but also in the water sector. So trying to get people to change their behaviour, either through behaviour change or increased automation, so that peak demand goes down. And citizens will be paying for these services and how you ensure that you're getting a legitimacy and an acceptability um, of the decisions that are made in, the, in these areas. Well, clearly, in, for such essential services, there are a range of perspectives. So you've got a lot of different interest groups who will say quite rightly that they, they've got a stake in some of these decisions. Ensuring that you're clear about where people are coming from, what might be driving their decisions, what might be motivating their actions and their thoughts is an important first step in terms of deciding what legitimacy might look like. I think because you've got this range of different interest groups who are always going to have an interest in these sectors, I think there will always be political interest in such essential services and services which have an impact not just on the individuals that use them, but on the communities that they're used in and the society in which we would live, both socially, economically and environmentally. It's really important that legitimacy is something which is built by respecting these different um, perspectives. So trying to 
work out where there is common ground between these different interest groups is an important part of developing the legitimacy of the decision-making that um, exists in these areas. One of the, the key things that this sort of deliberative engagement process can do is reveal the different perspectives that different people have and can share those perspectives. What we do for all our workshops is we ask the network what they think the key issues in this area are. So we put forward a proposal of what we thought were the difficult issues that our workshop should address. And we ask the members of the network to say, well, do you agree with this? So the network itself helped to set the agenda. And I think this is something which is different to what would happen if a regulator was running the process, whereby, driven by statutory duties, perhaps driven by political influence, they might have to say, we need to look at X, Y, Z issues, and they'd have a tight timetable. And that's right and proper because they've got statutory duties that they're needing to meet. By taking a wide, stepping back, taking a wider perspective and asking the members of the network what they think should be on the agenda enables a, perhaps a different uh, set of issues to come to the fore and a different conversation to take place. So it's an inclusive and iterative process at every step of the way. For such essential services, there are a range of perspectives. So you've got a lot of different interest groups who will say quite rightly that they, they've got a stake in some of these decisions. Ensuring that you're clear about where people are coming from, what might be driving their decisions, what might be motivating their actions and their thoughts is an important first step in terms of deciding what legitimacy might look like. I think because you've got this range of different interest groups who are always going to have an interest in these sectors, I think there will always be political interest in such essential services and services which have an impact not just on the individuals that use them, but on the communities that they're used in and the society in which we would live, both socially, economically and environmentally. It's really important that legitimacy is something which is built by respecting these different um, perspectives. So trying to work out where there is common ground between these different interest groups is an important part of developing le the legitimacy of the decision-making that um, exists in these areas. I'm now going to ask um, Helen to respond um, to what we've talked about so far, but also to highlight some of the research that, um, that she's done in this area. Um, so I am Helen Pallett. I'm a lecturer in the Human Geography of the Environment in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of East Anglia. And my research is about public engagement and public deliberation or participation around environmental policymaking and science policymaking. Well, I have to say it's been so interesting to, to listen to your descriptions of these processes, Sharon, and I think I've got a lot of questions for you, but I think I should probably get on with um, maybe saying a few more academic 
um, reflections first. I mean, I don't think any of this will be news to you, Sharon, but I just wanted to highlight that I feel like um, sustainability firsts processes, they're part of a long lineage of, of work in this vein. And I, f- I feel like you're you're taking up the baton from older organisations which no longer exist, such as the Environment Council, but also government-funded bodies like the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution and the Sustainable Development Commission, who also have been bringing together diverse experts and stakeholders around key environmental issues for this kind of deliberative engagement. Um, And this also links strongly to um, an organisation that I've done a lot of work on, which is called ScienceWise, which is an arm's length government-funded body that specifically brings together members of the public to deliberate around key environmental issues. So there is a slight difference there with what Sustainability First is doing, but it's still kind of playing on this idea that deliberation over a longer period of time, so science-wise says it has to happen over one or two days, the idea that this kind of deliberation leads to different kinds of outcomes and maybe a, a deeper or richer understanding of the problem at hand Um, and I was especially interested to hear what you were saying Sharon about your processes being inclusive and iterative so you're getting away from this idea that there's a set kind of goal or or policy that we want to change or decision that has to be made one way or the other and it sounds to me anyway like you're quite open about what the outcomes of the workshops you're running are Um, One of the criticisms that have been made of the kind of um, institutionalisation of deliberative engagement, which we've seen across the UK and and much of Western Europe over the last decade or so, has been that it kind of looks nice. It looks like it's being really inclusive and bringing lots of people in, but actually it's being done in quite a controlled, constrained manner, which leads to particular maybe even preordained decisions, rather than actually opening up the issue to a, a range of different ideas, possible futures and trajectories. So I just wondered if you were able to reflect on that, Sharon, um, what are the kind of expected outputs that you had, that, that uh, yeah, what were Sustainability First's expected outputs from these processes? Did you go in with this much more kind of open sense that it could lead to different collaborations between some of your stakeholders and it was about opening up questions rather than necessarily closing down to particular decisions and and answers about what the public or what key stakeholders think on these issues. With most of our workshops what we try and do at the end of the day is say if you're looking long term how much consensus can you get? Um, Quite often you can't get consensus because people, and the word again, legitimately, but legitimately have different um, objectives and different interests. You've got different interests, you know, maybe if you live in a city compared compared to the countryside. But there are a group of common interests and there is a group of sort of areas where you can build consensus. And if you can't build consensus... Even if all you're doing is building understanding of what the other side think or other groups um, in the debate think, that's a very valuable thing. If understanding is something that you can't put together, then at least getting a common language can be very beneficial. And there are all sorts of examples that I'm sure we can all think of whereby 
different groups have rubbed up and bumped against each other because they're using words in different ways and that can actually cause friction and make it more difficult to build consensus. So what we're aiming for isn't sort of a a nirvana where everybody agrees with each other. We recognise that that's unrealistic. But we're wanting to build a smoother decision-making process whereby difficult issues don't just get ignored. And I think there's a real hunger for that. There's a real appetite for that around, amongst everyone around our tables who comes to our meetings. And one of the byproducts is that people are starting to form bilateral partnerships and collaborations as a result of some of the discussions that they've had um, at the meetings and in network and UPIN events. So just putting people from different backgrounds together can help sort of lead to some light bulb moments that might otherwise be difficult. Um, I was also really struck by what you were saying about the difficulties of trying to get consensus through a deliberative process. And that's something that really chimes, I think, with my experience and my work. If you go back to the deliberative theory, as I'm sure you're aware, um, consensus is often held up as an ideal as something that you should get out of these processes but time and again we find that in reality either it's not possible or if it is if if we do get consensus at the end of a process it's kind of a manufactured one it's one that serves the needs of the kind of the most powerful group or person who's involved in that process so it was really interesting to me that you said it was more about trying to build understanding and just air some of the more difficult issues around environmental problems and key intersections between um, energy and water. Um, I kind of had a further comment about uh, the really interesting work that it sounds like Sustainability First is doing. Um, So I've been doing a lot of work recently about thinking about the contrasts and differences between the different ways in which you could engage publics and others around um, key issues like energy. Um, And coming from a background of deliberative public engagement, it's been really interesting for me to think about other ways in which people might engage as well. So there are the obvious ones, such as through public opinion surveys, through government consultations, as you've discussed. And with all of these methods, we can point out that there are strengths and weaknesses of of trying to engage and have a conversation in this way. Um, And we've also been trying to consider when people get involved in protests, say, or community energy groups, kind of more grassroots kind of um, activities, that you can also see that in a way as engagement around an issue. And, and how does that affect how we interpret these these activities um, and how we think about individual instances of public engagement? So certainly the point that I've been trying to make to people doing Uh, deliberative public engagement which I know is slightly different to deliberative stakeholder engagement is that you can never claim that this is the kind of the one and only process which definitively tells us what the public thinks Um, and I think this this fits well with your observation about your processes being inclusive and iterative that we need to constantly um, acknowledge the partiality of what we're doing. So the the way in which we've framed an issue and the way in which we've defined the question maybe is going to impact the, the outputs that you get. And it sounds like that's something that you're very much working with and acknowledging through getting stakeholders to help in this process of, of coming up with key questions and priorities. 
um, it was interesting that you were defining um, the kind of the key stakeholders in um, energy and water issues as primarily customers who are involved in kind of services. And I understand that that's because your these processes are about um, influencing utilities in particular and energy companies. But I wondered what, what difference might it make if we thought about citizens or publics instead of just customers. So that's kind of one of the questions we, we can ask ourselves to, to start to open up and open up these processes more, but also to acknowledge our own partialities. Can I just come back on that? Because our new PIN network is purposefully, it's a public interest network. It's not a customer network. And that's one of the reasons we set it up, because governments and regulators focus very much on consumers. And my background is in the consumer movement. So I was on the board of Energy Watch. I was on the board of Consumer Futures. Um, and I'm a council member of WHICH, which is the country's leading consumer magazine. But I think with these sectors, as you've just said, Helen, they have an impact which goes way beyond the impact of on individual customers in the home. They have an impact which hits societies, which hits the environment, and which hits the economy, um, and hits public health and well-being. And our network is very deliberately trying to get that full range of views. And I think that's quite different to how regulators and government often approach these issues. Being able to see these sectors absolutely from the point of view of customers and citizens is crucial. The problem that you come to there, and it's a problem we've experienced in our network, is that Customer groups, to some extent, are resourced to get involved in activities around price setting. Uh, so Energy Watch was set up by government to have a key role, seat at the table in some of these debates, Consumer Futures was. Um, the Citizens Advice Service receives some money to sort of participate in these things. Citizens groups aren't resourced in the same way. Um, and that's a strength, but it's also a weakness if they're not in a, able to engage in sort of longer-term debates or perhaps only those groups where people are really motivated to do so because they've maybe seen a new overhead line going through a beautiful valley that they're familiar with and they want to campaign against that or because they want to have a wind farm in their area or a solar farm or whatever it might be. So I think there are real issues of resourcing when you come to trying to get this joint customer and citizen um, perspective around the table. Well, the, the other thing I didn't mention that was a surprise to us with the network is nobody had really defined some of these really basic terms before. So people bandy around points like having a market is more efficient, but people haven't really thought of, how, well, what does value for money mean really in these sectors? People talked about resilience. People talked about fairness but they haven't defined the terms. And if you haven't got a sort of joint agreement about what it is you might be trying to achieve, it's quite difficult to get there. Analysing institutions academically requires new methodologies and new perspectives. In the final part of this podcast, we hear from three different projects looking to incorporate new ideas 
from political science into regulatory analysis. So my name is Laura Brinker and I am a UKIRK-funded PhD student at Oxford University Environmental Change Institute. And my research looks at energy retail markets um, and energy demand side transitions. So really how the relationship of the customer with the energy market is changing, as well as how business models in that space are changing and how that's being regulated for or regulated alongside, um, maybe in some cases. Um, My project, uh, as I was saying, is really about understanding how the energy retail market is governed. So that relates to regulation, but also actually to a bunch of choices the government makes. So one recent paper I gave at the Energy Research and Social Science Conference in April of this year was on frames of meaning underlying current energy retail market policies in Britain and how I think they relate to demand-side transitions. So for this paper, I used the analysis of problem-solution framings underlying specific policies. So this is inspired um, by scholars' interest in discourse to demonstrate how the currently dominant way of understanding firstly these approaches to studying meaning in discourse can help us in critically analyzing policies and questioning underlying assumptions. And secondly, that I believe that, um, or that if, rather, if we believe that a demand-side transition that is a change in how energy is being bought and sold in the home as well as in small businesses is to change, and if we believe that that is important for the decarbonization of the energy system, then the frames that you can observe are currently underlying policies are really too narrow and shouldn't be as economic and incrementalist as they are currently in Britain. I'm Liz Errington, and when I'm not piloting podcast projects about energy, I'm a senior research associate at the Centre for Competition Policy. I look at the problem-solution frames that have been operational in Ofgem since its inception um, and uh, similarly I've I've, um, highlighted uh, a consistent focus on a very particular way of understanding um, consumers focused on price and that the health of a market, what a good outcome is for regulation in the UK, is a high switching rate. But differently from Laura, um, I say that's got some really significant normative um, implications for policy formulation because what Ofgem has is a set of incredibly complex statutory powers um, which go far beyond uh, competition and the running of a competitive market. However, this framing, even when consultations or individual regulatory policies are discussing um, some very important distributional issues, this framing is very much operational in those discussions as well. And it really um, influences the type of policy formulation procedures um, and outcomes for consumers, citizens and for society. Regulatory questions that all of us work on um, as deeply political and deeply ethical questions. And as we go through this enormous amount of um, change through this energy transition to a very uncertain world, um, there needs to be institutional transfer- transformation alongside 
uh, the technical transformations. So I think the research agenda is really how to incorporate those normative ethical questions procedurally into the formulation of policy um, as we go through the transition to incorporate those ethical societal questions beyond the traditional economic ones. Uh, my name is Francesca and I'm um, uh, currently completing a PhD here at the University of East Anglia. And in my research, I look at something a little bit different. I look at the international um, dimension of uh, cooperation among energy regulators. I specifically look at the reasons why energy regulators from different countries um, engage in informal cooperation relationships through networks or associations. So I start from observing this fact that this cooperation exists and I ask what motivates it and whether it has an, any effect on, on policy. And my main finding is that, that regulators care a lot about um, their networks and their informal cooperation mechanisms. And the reason why they do is that they're able through them um, to obtain um, some kind of institutional benefit. So I, my argument is that regulators cooperate in their own interest, uh, but this interest is mostly institutional, so it benefits or it um, increases um, the scope of the institution or of themselves as individual, and that this is the condition for their informal cooperation to have any effect on policy. And in, in the cases that I look at, um, principally the case of um, the networking of European energy regulators, I show that this effect on policy has been pretty positive. Um, Francesco, I'd like to talk to you about the um, international nature of uh, networks with some of the themes that we've individually talked about. Um, so um, the idea of fairness or of equity or of justice will vary enormously um, between countries and indeed within countries. But from reflecting on, on your interviews, um, did you find that there was um, consistency um, in uh, ideas between within these networks? Um, was it more about, um, did you discover more consistency than differences between countries and between networks? Within the framework of the research, I carried out as many as 80-something interviews uh, with regulators from literally all over the world, all continents. And I must say that I did find consistency in the awareness of the matter. So although um, consumers per se and equity and justice aren't um, one of the key teams that I um, identified as motivating the birth of a network or its development, they are definitely something that energy regulators all over the world um, think about and talk about. So the topic is definitely an underlying thread of the work of the in, of the work of um, national regulatory authorities in their national contexts. I would say pretty much everywhere in the world. At the same time, there are differences in the way in which regulators think this should be operationalized. There are very different 
organizations in the political economy of different countries. So there's, there's very different ways of organizing the sector in different countries. So the political economy in different countries um, varies and that reflects on, these, on the extent to which the regulators is, is expected to do something about consumers. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was about the spread of ideas through these networks. So when there is a particular way of thinking about what a regulator should be doing, um, what role these networks play in spreading those ideas. So as you know, I use uh, network analysis in my research. So I really look at the structure of the network. I look at measuring networks and measuring the extent of this informal cooperation, which is otherwise completely um, invisible. And one property of networks is that they facilitate diffusion or, or contagion, if you want to use the um, jargon of network theory. So diffusion of ideas definitely take place, takes place. Um, and networks, so the access that networks afford regulators to their counterparts in other countries and their experiences is perhaps the most valuable feature of, of the networks themselves. Um, there are definitely some common frames across the world about what, how markets should look like, what the important things are about markets, and um, what the regulators would like to be able to do in that, res in that regard. I think the next big thing, or actually the current big thing, is the energy transition indeed. I look at that from a little bit of a different perspective, uh, perhaps, than, than, than Laura, in the sense that I look at the... Again, I have a kind of, of a more um, political economy approach. So I'm interested in the way in which the technologies that are available and the way in which the whole sector structure is going to change from the top down to the bottom up because you're basically um, re rearranging the sector so that consumers can feed into the system and you can integrate technologies, um, you know, ICT, like it, it, telecommunication and energy. Um, and you're basically moving towards uh, a world that does not exist yet, um, but, but can exist. And, and will exist, but you have to create the whole institutional and, and, and the rule structure around it. And I think this will be interesting from a regulatory policy point of view, because again, you know, regulation is all about winners and losers. And there will be costs to be shouldered and they will have to be reallocated across society. And this will be a deeply political and deeply complex process. And I think also for the institutions, the decentralization of energy systems will mean that you will have to devolve authority to lower levels of government. You have national regulatory authorities because the, because the grid is national, because the grid has a national scope. But if you want the grid to feed from below, you will need um, some regulatory authority devolved at the local level. And this might create, I think, some frictions. These podcasts were made with the assistance of students on the Humanities Foundation Year Media Technologies module, namely Anna Wormald, Poppy Frost, Evie Howarth and Simone Chalkley. 
They were recorded in the studio in the Humanities Media Centre at UEA by Stephen Bennett, lecturer in Humanities, in the Interdisciplinary Institute for the Humanities at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. <laughs>